Dear church family, if you were to wind back the clock of time, about 1,500 years, and you were to sit in the office of the great Christian champion Athanasius, you would have seen him write these words about the Psalms. He said, I believe that a man can find nothing more glorious than these psalms, for they embrace the whole life of man, the affections of his mind and the motions of his soul. To praise and glorify God, he can select a psalm suited to every occasion, and thus will find that they were written for him. And then if you took that clock of time and you wound it forward about a thousand years to the time of the Reformation, you would have heard a reformer named Paul Gerhardt say these words. He said, The Psalter is a theater where God allows us to behold both himself and his works, a most pleasant green field, a vast garden where we see all manner of flowers, A paradise having the most delicious flowers and fruits. A great sea in which are hid costly pearls. A heavenly school where we have God for our teacher. A compendium of all scripture. A mirror of divine grace. Reflecting the face of our heavenly father. And the anatomy of our souls. And if you were to go through all the rest of church history and read the writings of various pastors and Christians and theologians, you would find similar sentiments coming from their pens. There's something about the Psalms, isn't there, that resonates deeply with our hearts. Even if we don't take the time to carefully go through and analyze the words of the Psalms, when we sing them, there's something about them that resonates deeply in our souls. Let me give you some examples. When we're struggling with difficult providences in life, the Psalms allow us to pour out our hearts to God, to plead with Him, Lord, why? Lord, how do I deal with this? Or when we're in a time of of our relationship with God where we're dry, a time of spiritual dryness. The Psalms teach us how we should cry after God, to to seek Him. Think of Psalm 42, "As as the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul pants after God. Or when we're here as a church family, like this morning, and we want to lift our hearts to God in praise, the Psalms give us a, a perfect A perfect way to praise God. Just think of that. Perfect words. Because they're God's words that we're lifting up to him. Or when we've been in a time of sin. A time of backsliding. And we want to return to God. The Psalms give us those words to pour out to God. Psalm 32. Psalm 51. They teach us. They teach our hearts how to cry out to God. And I think in this large congregation, we could think of many other reasons, many other things the Psalms allow us to do 
in relation to God. Many other purposes for the Psalms. And yet as we come to this Psalm today, Psalm 27, and we look at the first six verses, we see that there's another particular purpose that the Psalms have for us today. And that is to strengthen the hearts of God's people in the ultimate realities of the Christian faith. To strengthen the hearts of God's people in the ultimate realities of the Christian faith. This text that we have this morning, the first six verses of Psalm 27, provide for us what we might call a God-given idealistic outlook on the Christian life. They give us a faith filled view of our lives as Christians here today. As we'll see in the sermon, these verses don't remove difficulties from the Christian life. They don't pretend that we sitting here and standing here today have no problems in the Christian life. But they look at the difficulties through the perspective of faith. We might say it this way. We might say that David, as he writes this psalm, doesn't allow his difficult life circumstances to overwhelm his soul. He doesn't let that happen. Rather, he takes those promises of God and he lets those promises overwhelm his life circumstances. That's the nature and the purpose of these first six verses here today. And we need this, don't we? We need the strength that comes from these words, these words of God. Parents, there's many parents here. We need the strength parenting our children. I only have one child, and yet I know this. We need the strength to parent our children from the Lord. Or in relation to one another as spouses, we need the strength of the Lord to love them rightly. Or in relation to leading the church, we need the strength of the Lord to carry on when things get hard, when meetings go late, when life gets busy or any other area of life. We need the strength that comes from these words in our lives. And so as we come to these verses, I want us to do it this morning, looking, looking for strength from God through trusting his word, looking for strength from God by trusting his word. Look first with me at verse one, and please, if you have your Bibles Children as well, please follow along with me as we go through the psalm. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, how does David, how does David begin this faith-filled psalm? Well, he begins it, doesn't he, with one word, the Lord. The Lord. In fact, in the original language, there's no definite article in front. It's just the Lord, just Lord, Jehovah. That's how David begins his faith-filled perspective on life. He begins with looking directly at his God, his covenant-keeping God, the God who had been his God all the way from childhood. Children, you remember perhaps that story that David tells of when he had to deal with the lion and the bear coming after the sheep. You remember that, don't you? How did he deal with the lion? How did he deal with the lion and the bear? How did he defeat them? Was it by his own strength? Of course not. 
It was through the Lord. And how did he deal with Saul, with Goliath, when he went out to meet that giant in the field? Was it by his own strength? Was it by his own military prowess? His own skill with the sword? No. It was through the Lord. The Lord that he conquered Goliath. And you look through all the rest of David's life, and it was the same way. You look at his issues with Saul, as he ran from Saul all those months and years, hiding in caves. How did he deal with that? It was through the Lord. And so he begins this psalm with the Lord. The Lord had never forsaken him. The Lord had always held him up. In fact, it's very interesting if you look at the original language here in this psalm, there's a certain word order that the original normally follows. Normally goes the verb, then the subject, then the object. And yet David actually breaks the rules of grammar and puts Jehovah first in the sentence so that it starts the psalm. He's saying the first thing I want you as my readers, my listeners to know is Jehovah, is the Lord. This is how I start my life as I deal with troubles. And it makes us ask the question, doesn't it? When we think about our lives, when we run into hardships in our lives, what's our knee-jerk reaction to the problems? Think about the internal dialogue that happens in your heads when hard things come into your lives. What happens? What, what do you think about first? If I think about my own life, I see the temptation to complain. It's a temptation to fixate on the problem. The temptation to blame. Yet how does David start? He starts with the Lord. That's his foundation for dealing with problems in his life. Now maybe we hear David say this and we admire David. We say, David, that's wonderful that you can start with the Lord. But why? Why do you start with the Lord? What is it about the Lord that makes you want to start and view your whole life through him? Well, if you follow along with me in our psalm, you see the answer, don't you? What does he say? He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. David is saying, really, that God is not just out there, some God who created the world and then just let it run on its own. He's not some distant God far away from David. Yes, he's, he's high above David. Yes, he's transcendent above the world. Yes, he is not touched by the evil of this world. But also, he is my light and my salvation. He comes close, as it were, behind me and shines the flashlight of himself, the light of himself upon my life path before me. He shows me where I need to go. It's through the Lord that I can view my life, the life of my family, the life of my friends, the life of the whole world around me correctly. It's through the Lord. He is my light. And we see this, don't we, throughout all of Scripture. And the question perhaps arises is, how exactly does God shine his light upon our lives? Does God mystically 
come to us and just give us a sudden understanding of where we should go? No, God's normative way of shining his light upon our paths is through the Bible, isn't it? Children, you know this verse. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word. It's God's word that is our light. And if you go to the New Testament, you see the same thing. Peter says, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. He's speaking of the Bible. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And that means that when we pick up this Bible, children, when you do your devotions in the morning, all of us, we pick up this word, we aren't just reading random words upon a page. God is specifically speaking to us, to our life circumstances, to our problems, and he's directing us in the way that we ought to go. He's shining a light upon our path through his word. But then the Lord is also our light in another way, isn't he? The Lord is our light because Jesus, the incarnate word, is our light. Jesus himself said it very clearly. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. You, you think of that picture when Jesus and the disciples went up into the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples are there and, and they say Moses and Elijah appear with the Lord and then all of a sudden Jesus becomes whiter and whiter and whiter. And he becomes so gloriously white and bright that the disciples are forced to fall before him. In fact, the text there reads in Matthew that Jesus' face did shine as the sun. Think of that. The light of the world, Jesus Christ. So David says, the Lord is my light. And he's looking to the word of God and to Jesus Christ himself. But then he also says, doesn't he, that the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. David looked out on his life, certainly, and he saw all sorts of problems, just like us, likely, here today. All sorts of issues, enemies rising up from outside the country, enemies rising up from inside the country, enemies rising up from his own family, enemies rising up from his own heart, his sins, his own rebellion against God. And so he knew that he needed salvation. And so he says, as he looks at the Lord, Lord, I cannot save myself, but you, Lord, are my light and my salvation. You are my light and my salvation. You save me from my sin. You save me from death. You save me from the devil. You save me from my enemies. Every single thing that I need salvation from You, Lord, are my salvation. And then he makes the natural conclusion, doesn't he? Follow along with me. He says, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer being nobody. Nobody, nothing, not even my own sin. Because the Lord is my salvation. And then he continues, doesn't he, with these words. He says, the Lord is the strength of my life. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, if we translated this very, very literally, it would read this way. 
The Lord is the mountain stronghold of my life. The Lord is the mountain stronghold of my life. Of whom will I tremble or shiver in fear before? That word there has the idea of fear so strong that you are quaking in your boots, to use that example. And David's saying, I don't need to do any of that. I don't need to fear. I don't need to tremble at the things in front of me. The Lord is my mountain stronghold. And so he's saying here, isn't he, that the Lord is his salvation from sin and enemies and the devil. The Lord is his light by which he can see properly to walk his life. And the Lord is his strength so that he has the strength to walk that life path in the Lord. And this is what we need, isn't it, in our lives. We need salvation first and foremost from our sins. We need light to know how to walk our life paths. And we need strength to walk that life path out as God has called us to. You know, if we use the word comfort, if we use the word comfort the way the scripture often uses it and the way our Heidelberg Catechism often uses it, David is really describing the Lord as his only comfort, isn't he? The Lord provides everything that he needs in this life and in a better one to come. And so David concludes, of whom shall I be afraid? I have the Lord as my comfort. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, if we look at ourselves um, in our contexts, and if we look at our nation particularly and the, the world, we understand, don't we, that we live in a context of many fears, financial fears, perhaps, Inflation, and we become worried about that. Or fears of war. We look abroad and we, we see the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the, we hear about the talk of nuclear war and World War III. And perhaps we fear. Or maybe we have sickness that we think about, sickness that runs in our family. Or we think about COVID-19 or other things. And we fear or any other thing in your life that causes you to fear. And yet David, as he looks to the Lord, he says, I don't need to be afraid of all these things. I do not need to be afraid. My heart does not need to be filled with anxious care over these things because the Lord is my salvation. He's really saying, listen, show me the man. Show me the circumstance. Show me the sin that should cause me to fear. And I will respond to you that I will not fear. I have no reason to fear because the Lord is my salvation. Now let me speak particularly to those of you who are children this morning. When you're children, sometimes you can have many fears, can't you? When you're very, very young, you can have fears of the dark or fears of unknown things. And as you grow older, you can have fear perhaps of others around you. Now the question is, how can you live a life without fear? And this applies to all of us. How can you live a life without fear? Well, the answer is exactly what David gives us here. You can live a life without fear by starting with the Lord, by laying your life upon the Lord, by saying to the Lord, listen, Lord, I am a child of many fears. I am a child of many sins. 
Lord, forgive me. Lord, comfort me. Lord, surround me with your light and with your salvation. And when we do this, we have no reason for fear because the Lord is powerful and the Lord is in charge. And perhaps you're a young person here and you look at your life and you're in, of course, a very different situation than a child, but you look at your life in front of you and you see many things that cause you to fear. You say, I don't know which direction I need to go in life. I I don't know what job I should train for, which job I should take. Um, I don't know if the Lord will provide the right spouse for me. I don't know this. I don't know that. Many fears. And yet, when we rest our life upon the Lord, when we start with the Lord, and particularly when we fill our mind with the word of the Lord, we have no reason for fear. The Lord will take our fears away because he is our strength, he is our salvation, and he is our light. And this leads us, doesn't it, to our second point in the sermon, and that is the regular experience of the Christian. The regular experience of the Christian. That's in verse 2. David says there, When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. They stumbled and fell. You see, David here is really looking back behind him and, and he's taking a long, sweeping glance at everything in his life, all the trials, all the problems, all the enemies, which we do sometimes too, don't we? And he's looking at them and he's taking them and he's surrounding them in the promises of God. And he's saying, despite all of those enemies, despite all of those problems, I'd have no need to fear because God will protect me. My enemies will stumble and they will fall. In fact, when he writes this in the original language, he makes a particular emphasis on that word, they. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. It would be today like us underlining it or italicizing it or bolding it. They stumbled and fell. The expectation was that David would stumble and fall. But all of a sudden, David sees, no, it's the enemies who stumble and fall. And you can picture it also this way. It's a military picture, isn't it? David would have many times been in the fray of battle. He would have seen enemies rushing upon him, eager to get him. He was the king. If you take out the king, you take out the commander. And David can see this. David has experienced this. And he sees them rushing towards him to get him. But all of a sudden, they are beaten back. They are pushed down. And David is safe. And the application we need to remember here this morning is that just as it was for David, so it is for us. So it is for us. We have many enemies in this life. Particularly, we have the, what's been described as the three-pronged enemy of the world, the flesh, the devil. And sometimes we can feel exactly how David felt. We can feel like the world is rushing on our hearts. We can feel like our flesh longs to go out to the world. We can feel like Satan is whispering temptations in our ears. And we might say, I can never win this battle. And yet, if we take the perspective of David, we can know that we will not fall. Ultimately, it will be them falling. It will be our sins falling. It will be our temptations falling. It will be the devil falling. 
And so David, even in the midst of warfare, looks as, as it were from a mile-high perspective on his life. And he sees that ultimately, ultimately, he's not going to fall. His enemies will fall. And this really points us, doesn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who experienced enemies above all enemies. He faced off, if I can use that language, with Satan himself. He faced death, the last great enemy. He faced all sorts of earthly enemies. He faced even his disciples turning against him and fleeing from him. Just think of that picture as Jesus Christ is walking his way up to the cross to face that last great enemy of death. And he hangs there upon the cross and he gives up the ghost. And imagine Satan and the spirits rejoicing because they think they've won the battle. And yet, what happened three days later? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. That's the picture David is giving us here. Even if our enemies feel, even if we feel like our enemies are going to defeat us, they will not defeat us when we are in Christ. David says in Psalm 18, verse 29, For by thee, by God, by Christ, I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. Now we need to take a moment here and pause. We need to emphasize something about our lives as Christians. And that is that although we will always conquer when we are in Christ, that does not mean that we will not experience many trials. Peter says to his church and to the other churches, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened unto you. Fiery trials. This should be the expectation in our life. And yet the point of this psalm is that those fiery trials will not ultimately burn us. They will not ultimately destroy us. We will be like Daniel's three friends in the fire with Christ beside us. We will remain ultimately untouched by the fire of those trials because Christ is with us. Jesus said it this way. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good courage. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. And so if we're in a place of hardship, perhaps this morning, can we say with David, can we say these words with David? Maybe we don't feel them, but can we say them? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. They stumbled and fell. This is what God calls us to do this morning. And that leads us, doesn't it, into a third point this this morning. Your stabilizing confidence. Your stabilizing confidence as a Christian. Verse 1, we saw that David had his comfort in the Lord. David had his comfort in the Lord. Verse 2, we see that the normal everyday experience that David had in life. But then here in verse 3, we see that David has a stabilizing confidence that flows out from these first two verses. Read it with me. He says, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. 
Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. So David has looked at the Lord, his comfort. He's observed the the past experiences of his life. He's seen that the Lord has been faithful. And now he looks forward into any battles that might face him in the future of his life. And he says, regardless of what happens, I will be confident. I will be confident. There's two pictures that David is giving in this verse here, and you can see them if you read the verse carefully. The first is a picture of a siege. The first is a picture of a siege. David's picturing an army camped around a city, ready to attack that city. And David would have experienced this, wouldn't he have? And the second picture is when that army decides to not only camp around the city, but come up right to the walls of the city and engage David in hand-to-hand conflict. Those are the two pictures. And yet David says, even if, even if the enemies of my life, even if the enemies of my soul come right up to me and begin to try to destroy me right up close and personal, I will not fear. I will not fear. There's a certain defiance of faith that David is showing us here. He's not being careless. He's not being falsely confident. But he's stating very clearly and unambiguously that regardless of the sins in his life, regardless of the enemies in his life, he's not going to fear. He's not going to give in to the troubled thoughts of anxiety. He's going to be confident in the Lord. Think of what Paul said in Ephesians 6. He said to his, the church there in Ephesus, he said, take to yourself the whole armor of God. But particularly, take to yourself the shield of faith. Take to yourself the shield of faith. That's precisely what David is doing here in this psalm. He's pulling up that shield of faith in front of him and all those fiery darts of the devil, all those temptations are being stopped by that shield of faith. Not because David's faith was something great, but because through faith we find ourselves in Christ. And Christ is our shield. Christ is our protection. And maybe you're here this morning and you know this is true. Maybe you've walked some miles, if I can put it that way, in the Christian life. And you've, you've gone through trials. You've gone through temptations. You've gone through backslidings. You've gone through times of doubt, times of coldness of your soul. And yet you know and you've found that God always draws you back. God always protects you in the end. God always pulls you to himself. And so you can say what David says. You are confident. Even if war, even if spiritual war comes right to the the, the gate of your soul, you're confident in God. He will protect you. And this confidence leads, doesn't it, into our fourth point in verse 4. The one desire of a Christian. The one desire of a Christian. 
he puts it this way in words that I think have become very precious to God's people over the years. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David's heart evidently had grown tired of flitting around to all the pleasures of this world. And he says, one thing have I desired. Not ten things, not five things. One thing have I desired. Now, young people, I think we often, at least at your age, have some of you at least have bucket lists of things that you want to do, whether you call them bucket lists or not. Things you want to do, things you want to see, places you want to go, things you desire. Maybe on your bucket list you have things like a good job, a steady job, a well-paying job. Or maybe you look down the road and you say, I, I want a good vacation home when I'm older. Or maybe you look at yourself and you say, well, I What I really want is a a high IQ. I want to develop a high IQ. Or I want a perfect body. Or I want perfect friends. Or I want a perfect family. And the lists go on and on and on. All these things that we can desire. And you know, we live today in an age that is absolutely consumed with one word. With the word more. With the word more. We always want more, don't we? All you have to do is go to the local shopping mall and you see advertisements calling out to you. You need me. You need me. You need to buy more of this. More of this. Or you go on Amazon and you see the same thing. You need more. You need more. You need more. And that was actually the very temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden, wasn't it? They had all of paradise. Every single thing. Things we can't even imagine. They were so good. And they had God himself. And yet what did the devil whisper to Eve and and through Eve to Adam? There's that one fruit you don't have, Eve. Doesn't it look good? You need more. And the temptation comes to us also here today. There's so many pleasures that we can desire. So many experiences. Things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. And yet what does David say? What does David say? He says, one thing have I desired. One thing. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know anything about the forgiveness that God offers through Christ, you don't know anything about the joy of the Lord, you don't know anything about that peace that passes all understanding through Christ. You don't know anything about sitting here in church and worshiping God with your whole heart. If you don't know these things, then you're going to hear David when he says this, and you're going to say, David, what are you talking about? One thing, David? David? Don't you know all the pleasures that the world has to offer? Just one thing, David, are you sure you know what you're talking about? 
you might say, David, come on. You're kidding me, David. Just one thing. And yet, if David were here today, I think he would respond to you something like this. He would say, listen, friend, I know all about the pleasures of this world. I've experienced power. He was the king. I've experienced fame. I've experienced sensual pleasures. I've seen crowds chanting my name in the streets. I've seen foreign kings bow at my feet. I've seen whole armies at my command destroy other armies. I've owned great wealth, gold, silver, all the pleasures of this world. I know all about pleasure from this world. But you see, there's one thing that I know that you don't seem to know anything about, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one Scripture describes as the fairest among 10,000. The one Scripture describes as the bright and morning star. The one who from everlasting to everlasting is God the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the one who dwelt with God the Father before any of this world existed, the one who rejoiced with God in perfect love, perfect glory, perfect joy. I know this one because he not only condescended to create me, but he condescended to come down and dwell with me, to deal with my sins, to deal with all my problems, to forgive me, to cleanse me, to wash me, to be my friend, to be my savior. You want me to leave this man, to leave this God for the pleasures of the world, the passing pleasures of this world that anyone with a grain of common sense knows will lead to death without Christ? You want me to do that? David would say, no, you're the crazy one. I'm thinking straight. One thing have I desired in this world. You know, if you're here today and you still hear me say these things and you say, I don't know what you're talking about. And you look at the pleasures of this world and you you still run after them in your heart. You want those things. Jesus Christ seems strange to you. You don't know about your sins, or at least you ignore them. It's remarkable because all these pleasures that you run after are actually pleasures that are painkillers for the pain that lies in each of our heart without God. When you run after the pleasures of this world and you ignore God, you are temporarily anesthetizing yourself to the pains of hell which will be coming. And so David, through this psalm, calls us. He says, leave these things which lead to death. Leave them alone. Yes, they're good if they're done, if they're right in the eyes of the Lord and if they're done in the Lord. But go and seek the Lord as the treasure above all treasures. 
Go and seek him. You will be found of him. I think many of you know this quote from the great early church theologian Augustine. He said this. He said, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And if you know anything about the life of of Augustine before he was saved, he ran after pleasures like none other. He tried all the pleasures. He was a famous man. And yet he searched. God taught him that all these things were nothing without Christ. And so God got a hold of him. God spoke to him through his word and saved him. And if you are here today and your heart is restless, even as you seek after the pleasures of this world, God calls to you, doesn't he? He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Rest for your souls. You see, if you're here this morning, You pay heed, you pay heed to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be wasting your time. When you seek the Lord with your whole heart, he will be found of you. When you leave the passing pleasures of the world and you seek after God, he will reach out and you will be found of him. And you will experience the wondrous comfort that David speaks of in this song. Well, as we think about these things and maybe we wrestle with them in our mind, let's take a moment also to consider something of what David is saying here in this verse. Notice first that David doesn't want to be far from God. He doesn't want to be far from God. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. The picture is a picture of a family. David doesn't want to be stuck outside the door of God's house. He wants that door to open. He wants the loving arms of his father to draw him in, to close the door, and to dwell with him as a family. And why does he want to do this? Well, he wants to do this for two reasons. First, he wants to behold the beauty of the Lord. And second, he wants to inquire, or we might say meditate in his temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The picture David really is giving here is a picture of friendship, a picture of love. He wants to dwell with the one his heart loves and longs after to look upon God, to behold his beauty, to be satisfied with God's beauty. You know, we are all sitting here today, we are all very different, aren't we? We have our own unique personalities. And yet, in one way, we are all the same. We all crave beauty. We all crave satisfaction. God has designed us this way. And the ultimately satisfying thing in all of creation is God himself. God is the most satisfying thing. And we are designed to be satisfied with him. 
Let me give you an example. Let's say you've, you've recently gone to the Rocky Mountains, which aren't so far from here. Or maybe you've been to the Niagara Falls. Or, or you've been to the Grand Canyon and you've sat there and you've, you've we, we describe it this way, we, you've soaked in the beauty. You've soaked in the beauty. It's satisfying to take in beauty. Well, just imagine, just imagine how satisfying it will be to dwell in the presence of the one who created all these things, the one whom creation reflects, and to take in his beauty, to take in his glory, we will be so satisfied beyond anything we can even imagine here below. We will be satisfied with God. And that leads, doesn't it, into verses 5 and 6 also. David also speaks of another reason why he desires God. He says, for in the time of trouble, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. And so David sees that God gives him the victory over his enemies. But how? How does God give him the victory? Well, God gives him the victory by giving David exactly what David asked for in verse 4. David asked to dwell in in the house of the Lord. How does God save him? By taking him into his pavilion. That's what we see in this verse. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. So God preserves David from his enemies by causing David to dwell with him. Spurgeon said this about these verses. He said, The royal pavilion was erected in the center of the army, and around it all the mighty men kept guard at all hours. Thus, in that divine sovereignty which almighty power is sworn to maintain, the believer peacefully is hidden, hidden not by himself furtively, but by the king who hospitably entertains him. And so the Lord saves David and he saves us also here. Not by permitting David to go out and do all the conquering himself. Not by permitting us to conquer our sins on our own. But by conquering our sins through Christ. And by enabling us to fight the good fight of faith through Christ. By hiding us in himself. Paul says this in Colossians as he looks at the church there. He says, you are dead. You are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. What Paul is speaking of here and what David is speaking of in this psalm is really the mystical union of God's spirit with our spirit. We can't see God, of course, children, But when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, his spirit, as it were, encloses our spirit in a mystical union and provides us with eternal protection and help for all things in this life. And it's when we have this, when we place our trust in Christ, when we are united with Christ by faith, that we can sustain all the trials of this life. It's this union with Christ that David's speaking of 
that enabled all those martyrs over the thousands of years since Christ came to sustain fire, to sustain the sword, to see their families ripped from them because they knew that they were safe in Christ. And so it is for us here today. When we walk through dark valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, if our souls are united with Christ, we can rest. We can rest under the shadow of his wings. We can say with the hymnist, Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And when we have this heart of faith, when we're leaning upon Christ as David was, then we we can say exactly what David said in verse 6. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. David doesn't just see the temporary battles of this life. He looks to the final victory. And he says, I'm going to be lifted up above my enemies. I'm going to be placed upon a rock so high they can't touch me. Through Christ. Through Christ. You know, we have a saying in our culture, I'm sure here in Alberta as well, that you win some and you lose some. You win some, you lose some. But when we are in Christ, when we are in Christ, there is no you lose some. It's only you win some. It's only you win some. You cannot fail to gain the victory through Christ. This is why Martin Luther in that famous hymn put it this way. He said, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Disaster who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he, and he must win the battle. Not us, but Christ. And so David, as he looks at all these things, has been assured of victory. He's been assured that his enemies will be defeated. His sin will be removed. And now, to use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, his heart was made sincerely willing and ready to live to God. He says in verse 6, Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto God. The Lord, And this is our life also, isn't it? When we know the Lord, when we have put our trust in Christ, when we have become reconciled with God through Christ, then the natural reaction is to have hearts lifted up in joyful praise to God. And so David, thousands of years ago, you can just see him in the tabernacle, in the temple, looking at those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices pointing to Christ and rejoicing thinking one day all my sins will be dealt with finally by Christ. One day I will be with Christ in heaven. And as we sit here today also, I trust, I hope, that this is where you are looking also. Worship on Sunday, like here today, can be wonderful at times. But worship in heaven, worship in heaven, where we will have Jesus Christ himself before us, 
with all the armies, all the hosts of heaven surrounding us in perfect worship, that will be amazing. Then we will truly understand what David was talking about when he said, one thing have I desired. We will know it in our hearts. And I think it's fitting as we close here this morning to go to that end of all things, to go to the end of time, to go to that divine worship service in heaven, if we can put it this way. John gives us a picture of that in Revelation 5. And I close with this. He says these words. He says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And so if we wish to be a part of that divine worship service one day, let us make the Lord our confidence. Let the Lord be the one thing that we desire. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We confess, Lord, that our hearts so often wander to the things of this world. But draw us, O Lord, as a magnet to thyself, to thy beauty, to the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. Lord, may we be taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ and him only. As we go our ways, Lord, may we be kept from sin. And we do pray, Lord, that thou wouldst be with each one who has special needs this morning also. Bring us together in safety also in the evening service to worship thy name with joy. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing now from Psalter 220.